Amen. All right, well, last week, I asked if anybody had seen the most anticipated movie of the summer, Barbie. I'm going to ask again, raise your hand if you've seen Barbie. That's better. It's not good, but it's better. Well, uh, the movie has been a hit. It's been so popular that, it did, I don't know if you knew this, it caused a shortage of pink paint. As in the world didn't have enough pink paint because of the movie Barbie. But what has fascinated me about the movie and a lot of other people is actually it's pairing with the other big summer blockbuster, Oppenheimer, which tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the person who spearheaded the Manhattan Project, which created the first atomic bomb. Now, Bar Barbie and Oppenheimer, not exactly uh, similar themes. And yet there has been a double feature phenomenon, the Barbenheimer. <laughs> what makes this even wilder is the fact that Oppenheimer's three hours long, like would you seriously go watch Oppenheimer and then be like, yeah, I need more movie. There was a New York Times article recently though where someone reported that their friend was planning on seeing the double feature. This person wrote in an email, my friends and I are in Chicago and are spending our day at the Alamo Draft House and seeing the films the way the Lord herself intended. Oppenheimer at 10 a.m. with black coffee and Barbie at 4.20 with the big Diet Coke. It is a really fun pairing. And the fact that these movies came out on the same day makes it just even more intriguing. You have Barbie with its colorful sets and whimsical Barbie land using up all of the world's pink paint. And you have Oppenheimer, the darker movie about the creation of atomic weapons that looks like it ought to be a dystopian story, except, of course, that it actually happened, that it's a true story. And it does make you wonder if this isn't why the devil feature always seems to go in this order. Oppenheimer first, so you can suffer the moral difficulty of the real world, followed by Barbie, which will add a little bit more hope in your life. It's a pretty good plan, except uh, if you're hoping to get away from difficult moral and ethical questions that highlight the problems in the real world, Barbie is not gonna ease your soul in quite the way you think it's going to. Again, if you haven't seen it, it's not the movie you think it is. Go see it. But there, it does make me think of this impulse in American society to always look on the bright side. We are an optimistic people, almost to a fault. In 1952, the clergy person, Norman Vincent Peale wrote the, po the very popular, The Power of Positive Thinking. And it may sum up American thinking better than anything. What if, through positive thinking, we can change how we live in the world. There's nothing inherently wrong with this, except for, of course, one big problem. Sometimes things are not as they should be. And if we're not careful, 
overemphasizing positive thinking can sound a lot like saying, well, why don't you just get over it? There are some things positive thinking cannot overcome. And that's just part of life. That's one of the reasons why I love our book for today. Our, our reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes. And sometimes you think about scripture as the place you, should, you need to go when you need to hear a good word, something uplifting and bright and airy. You know, our life may feel like Oppenheimer, dark and stormy, but the Bible, that's like Barbie, bright and airy, except it isn't always. And there's a lesson in that if we're willing to hear it. So let's hear now our reading from the first and third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago were not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. So what gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past into future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there as well. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. Oh, may God bless this reading. Well, Ecclesiastes is a really odd book in the Bible because it feels so hopeless. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new can come into being. What good is our work 
Is it going to lead to anything? If you read other parts of the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes as far as to say things like, I'm going to do something good and my kids are just going to undo it. So what's the point? What comes with all that we do in our lives? Nothing is permanent. So how do we find meaning in person, in purpose? You know, even the first lines of this book speak to this. Vanity, vanity, all things are vanity. The Hebrew word that is used here is a little bit difficult to translate. And you can tell because virtually every translation of the Bible uses a different word. And the New Standard America, the New American Standard Bible, it's translated as futility. Futility, futility, all things are futility. In the New International Version, which is the most popular English version, it's translated as meaningless, as in meaningless, meaningless. All things are meaningless. This royal philosopher, Kohelet, as scholars refer to him, is unmasking a sense that the world, in fact, may have no greater purpose. And indeed, I've, I've heard this thing that theologians say sometimes, that the gospel is hopeful, but not optimistic. That we actually believe that God is doing work despite what is wrong around us. But what this book teaches me and teaches us is that it's worth meeting people where they're at. It's worth admitting that for some folks, things are not as they ought to be. And that's what Ecclesiastes tells us, that it's okay to feel unsettled, maybe even hopeless. You know, one of the most famous wisdom texts, we've been talking about wisdom texts in the Bible. Uh, we're not talking about it in this series, but it comes from the, uh, the book of Job. It's considered a wisdom text. And I think most people know the story of Job. Bad things happen to him. Things that he can't explain. His health fails. His family members die. He loses wealth. And his friends try to explain it to him. You must not be praying enough, or you must have made a mistake and you need to seek forgiveness. You must have done something to bring the hardship on yourself. But one of the lessons that Job actually gives us is just the opposite. Sometimes bad things happen and we can't explain them. We can't understand them. We can't make sense of them. And yet we have to live with the struggle and the difficulty. Sometimes the world is random and having a good explanation doesn't make the problem go away. The power of positive thinking won't make the problem go away. And so what Job's friends ought to do, as one theologian puts it, isn't try to explain away what's going on, nor is it to offer advice. It's not even to tell them to look on the bright side. Rather, what they ought to do is sit with him in his pain, to grieve with him, and so we get to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think that this author is having a difficult time with the world. He's wondering what the point of all of his work in life is for. Does any of it mean anything? 
And this is why I am so glad this book is in the Bible. It's one of my favorite books. Because sometimes I feel this way. Sometimes I struggle with what the purpose of it all is. Is there hope? Is there any reason to be optimistic about the future? I watch the news. Is there anything, is everything going to work out? And I think most of us will at some point in time feel this way in our life, where we're uncertain about what's going to happen. For me, it is so helpful to know that the Bible isn't so much a guide for how to be positive all the time as much as it is the story of people's varied experiences with life and God. Because it includes stories of hope and optimism, but it also has these stories that are the opposite of that. The Bible can be like a Barbie dreamland and it can raise and ask the questions that a movie like Oppenheimer demands of us. It does both. And this is one of those things in ministry as a pastor that I've uh, taken a long time to learn. Um, while I myself have known the feelings of despair and grief that Ecclesiastes brings up, uh, I can sometimes fall prey to something that we all do from time to time. You know that when you try to encourage positive thinking when actually it's not really needed. And I've been really lucky that I am, uh, my wife Amanda is a chaplain and now a trained therapist who can say, don't do that. I can still remember this really difficult time I had at my previous church. Now, a young man in his late 30s died very suddenly and he left behind his wife and a young daughter. And I can still remember, I have vivid memories of going to their house that day. And there were dozens of family members gathered and we just hung out all day. We just stood around all day, just talked sometimes about the weather. I mean, what do you do? And I struggled with this. Uh, it was one of the, the first, all deaths are tragic to some extent, but this one was kind of especially so. And I struggled with what to do with how to make it better. But there is no way to fix a problem like this. There is no way to make the pain go away. And so I asked Amanda about this. What is your best advice? Because I wanted to be able to offer the perfect, effective pastoral thing that in an instant would make it all better. And she answered with all the wisdom in the world, there's nothing you can say. You can simply be present and allow her to feel what she's feeling. Be with her in her grief. And so I did. We'd go to coffee periodically and she would talk about all of the feelings that she had, the grief, the pain, the sorrow, the hopelessness. And then we'd have meetings where she would talk about how angry she was that her husband had left her behind. And I know logically you're thinking, well, he didn't leave her, but emotions are not logical. She felt abandoned by her partner. And so we would sit together and we would just talk about these things and feel them together and not try to dismiss them. 
And as Christians, this is as much our calling as anything. If you think about the life of Jesus, he spends his time hanging out with those who are marginalized, who are poor, who are on the outside. And Jesus offers them hope, for sure. But it's a hope where they are. It's a hope that comes when somebody says, I'm present, I'm here, I see you and what you're going through. And I have this firm belief, call it hope or optimism, that the member of my old church will be able to live a full and fulfilling life. And I know that in part because she is. The grief that she has felt is still there. It's always there, it will always be there. But even now I know her hope is not because she focused only on the positive, but because she was able to acknowledge what was actually present in her life, to feel it. This for me is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes we want really easy answers. We tell people that their loved ones are in a better place. We utter phrases like God needed another angel, which was said at her husband's funeral with good intentions. But sometimes what people need to hear is, I see what you're going through. And I'm here to grieve with you, to cry with you and make sure that the pain you are feeling is recognized by your community. You know, a few weeks ago at General Assembly, one of the most powerful sermons was given by Owen Chandler, who is an active duty chaplain in the army. He was stationed in Kuwait during the final days of the American occupation of Afghanistan. And we've all seen these pictures. There are people piling onto planes to get out of Kabul as the country fell to the Taliban, people jumping and piling on top of one another to get out. So Reverend Chandler was stationed in Kuwait at one of the bases where these people were being brought into to be processed. And he shared that it was several hectic weeks and you can imagine just how painful it was, 16 hour days setting up for way more people than they expected. And there were security risks because of course you can't make sure that every one of the multiple thousands of people coming through were who they said they were. And so everybody was on edge. And of course there were the exhausted personnel the work just kept coming and kept coming. So Reverend Chandler told the story about one person in his unit in particular who kept coming to share her frustration. She was tired and she was angry at the Taliban, at the US government, and how the situation had been handled, and even at her own involvement. So she kept coming to Chandler, to her chaplain, to talk, and to express her frustration. And he shared the only response he could give over and over and over again. I know, I know, this is hard. All he could do was share her pain, her frustration and her grief. There was no easy answer, no power of positive thinking that would have rescued her from what she was feeling. There was just being together. But in that, he shared with us, there was a sense of the presence of Christ, of being together in the messiness of a kind of divine solidarity in which we recognize 
one another's shared humanity, that we all go through these problems, these crises. So there is wisdom in acknowledging that sometimes things simply aren't right and there's nothing you can do about it. But the wisdom is that we can sit with one another in the midst of that pain and that difficulty. And that offering hope is as much about sitting with folks as it is about offering optimistic thinking. Sitting with folks says to the lonely, the brokenhearted, the angry, the frustrated, you are not alone. And there is power in that presence. Amen. Well, as we gather for church today,